If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first five verses. 2 Samuel 3 verses 1 to 5. Folks, listen. This is God's word. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. This is God's word. This passage summarizes and describes succession. Okay, it's a transition that's taking place from one king to another. It's describing transition from former King Saul, who's died, to King David. And it describes this transition as a war. It's a war. Life at this point for David was a war. And we're going to see that David's life is actually not far from our own. Okay, as we look to apply this passage to our lives, to understand it and then apply it, we're going to touch on the fact that I think if you're honest, for us in our lives, we all struggle with things. There are things that we wish we were that we're not. There's things that we deal with that we wish we didn't, right? We all have troubles and difficulties. It feels like there's a war going on in our own hearts, right? And so this passage describes that war and the sneaky tactic that puts us all in danger. And so we're going to look at these things in three points today. So if you want to take notes, I'll give them to you. We're going to see first, taking sides. Second, gradual progress. And then third, imminent danger. Taking sides, gradual progress, imminent danger. So first, taking sides. The text says there was a long war, verse 1, between the house of David and the house of Saul. This is a long war. 2 Samuel 2, verse 11, you know, just in the previous chapter, it says that this war lasted for seven years and six months. Okay, this was not an easy transition. It wasn't, you know, you elect the guy in November and then he's sworn in in January. This was a war that erupted. And we've seen the beginnings of that war with Abner, you know, the commander of Saul's army. We've been watching and seeing the episodes of that. But this was how long David reigned in Hebron only over the house of Judah. Okay, before it took him seven years and six months to reign over all of Israel. And so in this passage, the narrator sort of taking a step back and reminding us of the overlying plot of the story. Okay, God's salvation is being established. God's people are being formed into God's kingdom. And the kingship of Saul is being replaced by the kingship of David. Okay, so all of the things we've seen so far, all the conflicts, all the battles with Abner, with Joab, with Asahel, all these conflicts that we've seen up to this point, all of this are being seen that they're kept in this larger war of succession. And what we see here is that God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom is coming. Now I want to ask, well, how does this war apply to us? How does reading about a war that took place in about 1000 BC. How does that apply to our lives? Right? You wonder about that? How does any of this apply to our lives? We're trying, but I mean, how do you read this and go, okay, this is how this fits for me? Well, 
I think first we need to realize that this war between the house of David and the house of Saul, this war in our text is actually one expression of a larger war in the Bible. It's actually the war that spans the entire Bible. Okay, from Genesis to Revelation, there has been a war. And this war between David's house and the house of Saul actually began in the Garden of Eden. Okay, this war began in the very beginning with Adam and Eve falling into the serpent's temptation. Right? Satan comes as the serpent, tempts Adam and Eve. That's where the war began. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, let's look and see how God responded. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God is pronouncing judgment against the sin that was committed, God said this to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so God actually puts enmity. You see this? So God's response to the fall into sin is to declare war. It's to declare war on the thing that separates us from him. Adam and Eve sided with the serpent in the garden. Okay, they weren't just eating this fruit that was off limits. They were siding with the word of the serpent. They were believing what the serpent said rather than what God had told them. And so when Adam and Eve allied, when they joined sides with the serpent, God comes and says, no, no, I'm not going to give up on people. I am not going to let this happen. And so God put enmity. He declared war between the serpent and the woman. He created this, this, this wall of, of division between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? That's their followers or their offspring. And he declared war on evil. And then he called his people to fight in that war. And so the rest of the Bible plays out this war, this war between good and evil, between God and the people who oppose God. We see it right after the garden with Cain and Abel, right? Cain versus Abel. You see it in the Exodus story between Moses and Pharaoh and the Egyptians, right? You see the same war played out. We saw it in 1 Samuel between David and Goliath, right? This war keeps getting played out over and over and over again in Scripture. And in this text, this same war, it's the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between God and his people and the devil and his people. It's being played out in our text between the house of David and the house of Saul. It's the people who follow God's chosen king versus the people who reject God and want to have life their own way. When you see that this war is part of that bigger war, then you begin to understand how it applies to us because this war is still going on today. This war is still going on. We are part of that war. Okay, now, as you think about which side you're on, as you think about the rest of the world and everybody else that you know and whose side they're on, let me just ask you to be careful for a second. Okay, you got to be careful. Um, I want to read you a quote by, uh, by an author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Okay, and he says this. He says, so many people think that in the war between good and evil, in the war between God and Satan, between the good guys and the bad guys, they think that the war, that the line, um, that the line is drawn through or between political parties, right? 
our party's on the right side and those folks on the other side are evil and wrong, right? While the other side's saying exactly the same thing. He says, we so often think the line's drawn between political parties or we think it's drawn between classes, socioeconomic classes, or it's drawn between races or through countries. But this war is actually closer to us than we think. Because Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, the line between good and evil is actually drawn right through our own hearts. It's drawn right through our own hearts. We, in our lives, embody this struggle. Our lives, in some ways, are expressions of this war. It's the line between what we want to be and what God wants us to be, right? It's the line between um, who we want to be and what we find ourselves to be, right? It's what society needs us to be versus what we are. When you think about that, we are in this war. And so when we say that we need to take sides, boy, whose side are you on? Well, see, we want to say that, right? But then I think sometimes we say, well, which part of me needs to answer, right? Sometimes we find that, well, we're on God's side as long as fill in the blank. But then we find that we're on the other side when fill in the blank, right? I mean, we struggle with this. And it's interesting because even with leadership that's provided in the world, we still struggle because you want to believe in a president who can embody everything, right? You want to take sides politically. You want to take sides in a, in a community. You want to, you, you hear one person's opinion about the, the, the solution that our world needs, our country needs, our city needs. And you think, okay, yeah, yeah, that'll work. And what you don't realize is that on the other side, you got wise people who have other good solutions and these folks fight against each other. I mean, it's hard. Right. There is no human leader that we can say, if I follow you, I'll never go wrong. And so when you think about taking sides. Which side are you on? I think today for us to be in this war, it begins with following Jesus. It begins with following Jesus because Jesus is God come to earth. Okay, Jesus is is the one who came to deal with evil definitively. Jesus is the one who cares so much about what's wrong in the world that he came to fix it himself. Okay, and and the way Je- and you know that Jesus was right because Jesus didn't come just to tell us what to do. Right? That's not what Jesus did. Jesus came to say the only solution for evil is for someone to defeat it and the way evil works in a world where God will hold everybody accountable is for someone to pay the price of evil. And instead of telling you that you need to pay sin's price, Jesus said, I'm going to sacrifice myself and do it for you. Jesus has definitively dealt with evil. He is the only one who is worth following with all of our hearts, with everything. And it's funny because in all of the divisions, politically, economically, class-wise, with opinions that go on, my experience has been that usually you can find people who are following Jesus on both sides or on multiple sides of the issues. You know, and so 
So I think taking sides begins with following Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that folks who say that they follow Jesus are always right. Okay? We've got to say that, right? The church is not always right. There are some people who say, okay, well, so you got the house of David and the house of Saul. The house of David is the church. The house of Saul is the folks who reject the church. They're outsiders. Therefore, we're at war, and the way to wage war in, you know, today is for the church to fight against society. Tell them how wrong they are. Tell them how right we are. Boy, it might be true if it wasn't for Joab, right? It might be true if it wasn't for Asahel. Might be true if it wasn't for David. <laughs> Might be true if it wasn't for me. Might be true if it wasn't for you. Right? The line between good and evil, we can't draw it around the church as though we are always right. The line is drawn right through our hearts. And so choosing sides means taking sides against the evil in you first. It means recognizing that in a church full of people who are not perfect, there's going to be problems, there's going to be error, and recognizing that when the church is doing something wrong, then it is to, the, the following Jesus is to oppose the church. Does that make sense? Taking sides, siding with Jesus, sometimes means calling the church out. And so, and I think that, that's the order. When we, when we take it from the order of opposing what's wrong in our hearts first, and then our church family, then our city. When we do it in that order, it gives us a humility because it begins with our weakness and it doesn't have an us versus them mentality. It's a we. We're all struggling to be what God wants us to be. We're all struggling to have a society where peace and justice reign, where love and community flourish. And when we do that, and we can acknowledge where we fight against that stuff, then when we reach out, we reach out, we actually can come alongside and work together. And that's how we take sides. That's how we take sides. The Bible says judgment starts with the house of God. Jesus said, make sure you take the log out of your own eye before you go after the speck in someone else's. And so taking sides means that you need to look for it in here, identify with your own weaknesses, become acquainted with those, and begin to work on those, oppose those things, and let that humble you so that when you go to someone else in the church and then when you reach out and try to oppose the evil and the injustice in the city, that you do it with a humility that characterizes someone who knows the struggle that you're opposing in others. That's what it means to take sides. Our second point is gradual progress. Gradual progress. Again, this is also verse 1, second half of verse 1. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So we see here, David's kingdom and his influence grew because God was with him. God was blessing him. God is the source of life and of power. And Saul's house is being diminished and weakened because it was cutting itself off from God. That's how it works. When you cut yourself off from God, you lose his power. You lose his life. You lose the things that make, I mean, it's like you cut yourself off from all that's good. 
And that has an impact. It makes us weak. And so this also applies to our lives and our ongoing struggles. Okay? In Scripture, this is one of the ways that the Bible talks about the struggle that we have in our own hearts. Okay? We read it in Galatians 5 in the Confession. The the desires of the flesh war against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit war against the flesh. We have these two kingdoms, these two armies fighting against us. Right? You, you all know this struggle, don't you? <laughs> right? We get desires that we wish weren't there, right? Ugh. I mean, this is what happens. It's our flesh versus God's spirit. And it's a war. It's a long war, just as verse 1 says. It's a long war. Progress takes time, and it's gradual. It's gradual. This is um, the Bible setting expectations for us. Okay, the transition from David to Saul took seven years. So for us, when you begin to follow Jesus, you will have the experience that some things will go away immediately. There will be things that you're struggling with that by God's grace and because of his power, things will will go away. You won't struggle with them anymore. I mean, in my own personal experience, my language, uh, I used to curse like a sailor before I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, my, my language cleaned up pretty quick and it wasn't very, it wasn't too difficult to see that happen in my own life. But some things take a long, 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 long time. Some things take a long time, sometimes our entire life. And I want you to see I want you to think, when you read verse 1 in this, in this passage, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Think, there is a long war going on in my heart. I mean, would to God, and God, please give us freedom from all of our struggles. Do it now, right now, by your spirit. You can pray that, pray it fervently with all your heart, because God may choose to do that. But it seems like what God typically does It seems as though when you apply all of the means that God has put forth, all the things he tells you to do, it seems like even when you do everything, God is saying there's going to be a long, gradual progress. Progress is going to be gradual. Okay, you just need to know that. It's it's frustrating on one hand, um, but it's also encouraging because if you're in that long, long war, if the progress is gradual, like you're in, you're in a good place. You're where God wants you to be. And, and we can ask the why question on that. I've thought about that. My best answer on why God, why this process is gradual. So here it is. Here's my best answer. Take it or leave it. Um, I think it's because God is more interested in keeping us with an experience that can relate to folks who don't yet know him. If God zapped you and you were clean and took away all your struggles, I mean, how easily do you forget what it's like, what it was like before, right? As you grow and see yourself growing in an area, how impatient do you get with other people who are struggling with that, right? And I think that in God's wisdom, he said, I'm not looking for perfect people to be my poster children. I'm looking for people who are humble enough to understand that it's a long process and it's gradual. 
and that it takes dependence and trust in me. I think those are the people that are attractive to folks who are struggling in the church and folks who are outside the church. So that's my best wisdom as I've thought through why God would do that. I think it makes sense. So the question then is, how do we fight? If we're in this war, if this war is going on in our hearts, how do we fight? Well, I think we need to understand that God has a part and we have a part. Okay? Both of us have a part. We think about God's work, that Jesus, he came to do battle with evil. There's things that he did for us that we cannot do. And if he didn't do it, we'd be stuck with no hope for progress in our war. But God did something definitive. He came, and on the cross, he took on our sins. Okay? He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Plus, he also overcame evil and death in his resurrection. Okay? When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just like a, a, a resuscitation that can happen in the ER when somebody flatlines. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was emerging forth from death, conquering evil. He was declaring that his power is stronger than the power of evil in your life. He was conquering the power of evil. He's more powerful than evil. And so if you trust in him, his, more, his stronger power than is in you. And so you have God's work. That's what God has done. But then God makes these promises. He makes these promises to you. And when you understand the promises, that's how you experience his work. Okay, that he's forgiven you. He's made you righteous. He's declared that you're perfect in his sight. Not because you're perfect, but because Jesus was perfect. Okay, and then he has actually regenerated you. Okay, it's a theological term. He's taken out that bad heart and he's put in a heart that loves him. If you trust in Jesus, that is something God has done in you. He gave you a new heart, a heart that loves him, a heart that loves to do what he wants, a heart that loves to spend time with him, a heart that loves people. That is a promise from him. And when you understand that promise, you actually experience that new heart. And then he's connected you to Jesus. He's joined you to Jesus who's in heaven, right? And this is kind of a mysterious thing, but you're connected to Jesus. And so that's where the power comes from. The power comes from so that your David side gets stronger and your Saul side gets weaker. Okay, and so that's what God has done. Now, what's our part? Well, our part is that we need to believe. Who, you know, we need to believe in him and what he's promised. Then we need to live as though the promises are true. And then we need to put it into practice. So you got to trust in Jesus. You got to believe the promises. And how do you know what the promises are? Well, you got to read. The, you know, theologians say that God has given us means of grace, right? These are like hoses that exist in our lives or, or you know, fuel injectors uh, in our lives. God has put these means of grace and filled the world with them so that we can understand his promises and receive his grace. And his means of grace are his word, this is why it's so important to read the Bible. It's not just because, well, you got to read the Bible because you got to read the Bible. It's because this is one of the means that God uses to tell you what he's done for you, to tell you what he's doing in you so that you can know who you are as a Christian. I didn't know that my old self died. 
with Jesus when Jesus died. That's interesting. I want to walk in that. I didn't know that before. Now I know it. Now I can put it into practice, right? So God's word is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace, right? It's not a ritual thing that you have to do. It's, boy, it's the way that you connect to the Almighty. It's how you cultivate a relationship with him. The sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism, these are means. These are means that God uses to preach to us. Not just that the word is outside, but the word is in you. It covers you. It fills you. Right? These are the means of grace. And so we need to understand these things. We need to practice them. And then we need to put the promises of God into practice. That's our part. That's our part. And it's how we grow. It's how we fight in the war. One author said this, growth is an awesome thing, really, when you think about it. Folks could just say the same. It could just be that God doesn't change us at all. And that that, that would be normal if that's all we knew. But God has made us to grow, to blossom, to be transformed and to flourish. It's in our nature. This is how God, the Redeemer, created us. It's the glorious thing about a believer's new nature, a new self. So we need both. We need both our part and God's part to go together. And I mean, that's where, again, the confession verse, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God that works in you. There it is right there. Our part, his part. We work out what he works in. I read an article, really interesting article, about Christopher Hitchens this week. Um, Christopher Hitchens is one of the most famous atheists um, he's debated um, he's debated Christian apologists all over the world. Um, he wrote a book called God is Not Great. Um, and it's interesting because Christopher Hitchens' brother is, a, I guess, a devout Christian. And so I guess they've had their own debates. But Christopher Hitchens has, has been diagnosed with cancer. And so he knows that he's not going to live. And this is interesting. This is one of the things that the article quoted him as saying. He's been diagnosed with cancer and he said, people have been saying to me, Boy, cancer picked the wrong foe in you. You can beat this if anyone can. You get that, right? You understand, hey, you know, you can do this, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Boy, you know, cancer didn't know what it was up against. Here's his response to that. He said, this has the effect of kind of giving me the blues because I don't want to let people down. Christopher Hitchens realizes there is a limit to what I can do, and I don't know if I can do it. This is why we need both our part and God's part. Okay, because without God's part, we couldn't make progress, not lasting progress. Without God working into us, his presence, his heart, his life, we'd be a disappointment too. And I think that It's as we experience this gradual progress. Again, this then is how we wage war in society. Okay? This is how we do it. As we experience this stuff, then we actually, it's it's that growth, that hope, that peace, that joy that you feel as you see God at work. That's what spills out and touches people. And that's what we share with people. And it's our sharing of what God is doing in us. That's how we wage war, okay? We don't yell and scream at people. We don't, 
legislate our morality into a culture that doesn't want us pushing ourselves on them, we experience and live out the transformation of Jesus. And then we tell other people how they can do the same. That's how we wage war. It's sharing this gradual progress with others. Okay, so that's our second point. Our last point is the imminent danger. In our text, everything is going great for David, right? We've seen him respond impeccably to the death of Saul. We've seen him encourage his enemies. Um, He's getting stronger and stronger, our text says. His enemies are getting weaker and weaker. And then look, verse 2 to 5, look at all these kids he has. This is huge. Like, you don't understand. No, 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 no. This was huge. He had six sons. Six sons. Boy, cultural difference here, right? You're like, huh, what does that matter? Why does that matter? Back then, children are the future for a kingly dynasty. Okay? The more sons you had, the more blessed you were as far as everyone was concerned. Okay? They're the guarantee that the dynasty would last. Scholars have said that the king's reputation and power was measured by the number and importance of his wives as well as the number of his sons. That was status. That was power. That was a guarantee of your future dynasty lasting forever. And so if you had read this back then, you'd think, man, this is amazing. David is becoming just like all the other great kings of the world. Uh Uh-oh. Catch it? David's not supposed to be like all the other great kings of the world. This is a problem. Israel is supposed to be different, right? Israel is supposed to be special, supposed to be chosen by God to show the world the way of blessing. Israel wasn't called by God. God started over with one man, Abraham, and said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to show you what it looks like to really live a blessed life with me, to really learn how to trust and obey me so that you can experience life to the fullest blessing so that you can teach everyone else how to live this way. So you can invite everyone else into the promise of abundance and blessing of God. And yet here, the opposite's happening. In this place, David, he, instead of teaching the rest of the world how to live, he is mimicking the other great kings of the earth. David here is sinning. He's compromising with the culture around him. David has given in. It is clear in Scripture that polygamy was forbidden. It was forbidden explicitly to Israel's kings. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, it explicitly states that one of the sins of a king is to multiply wives. The Bible, uh, the Bible is in opposition to polygamy. And where in the stories, where someone doesn't come and say, hey, this is wrong, the story itself shows the evil outcome of of polygamy okay if you think that god is endorsing polygamy anywhere in scripture just look at the lives of the people that practiced it okay 
I mean, even here with these kids, children are a blessing from the Lord. And there are passages of scripture that say, blessed is the man who's got a whole quiver full of arrows, right? Quiver full of kids, 12 you know, or more, right? The, the, the number of, of children was supposed to be a blessing. But if you trace out the names of these sons, you find that this actually ended up being the destruction of David's dynasty. Follow it out. Read the rest of the story. And so it's crazy. It's crazy here because David had been trusting God for decades. Right? That's why he's in this place because he'd been trusting God. Trust is what kept David from killing Saul. Trust is what kept him honoring Saul when he could have killed him, when he was running for his life away from Saul. It was trust that kept David close to God through all the difficulties of him on his road to ascending to the throne. God had brought him through. God had taken care of him. God had nourished him and protected him and ensured his future safety. But it seems here that David hasn't connected all the dots. This is an area of David's life where his powerful trust in God hasn't connected with his actions. This is an example of where that line through David's heart shows that David is human, just like us. And this applies to us, right? Because how many of you have in the area of your life, you say you're trusting in Jesus, you say you're following after him, I have a relationship with God, but is there an area of your life where you're compromising? an area of your life where you're not connecting the dots. You're trusting in God in some parts and in other parts you're not. This is the imminent danger and it exposes actually one of the most effective tactics of our enemy. Of our enemy. The Bible says that when the devil realizes he's going to lose, he adapts. He adapts and what he does is he infiltrates. He infiltrates the winning side and then does everything he possibly can within the, within the winning side to bring it down. That's what the devil does to David. It's what he does to us. So when you choose sides and decide to follow Jesus, Satan will do everything he possibly can to keep you from that choice. And if he can't, then he'll try to create a beachhead in your heart. He'll try to figure out an area of your life and get you to compromise. And we do this just like David. We do this when our desires get the best of us, right? Because you think about David. Man, I'm the king. Why shouldn't I take another wife? She is hot. Come on, right? Everybody else is doing it. Why shouldn't I? How many times have you said that? How many times have you justified something in your own life? Everybody else is doing it. I think, too, we compromise when, when we're afraid, right? This is an effort on David's part to secure his throne and his dynasty forever. Boy, if I don't do this, what if somebody kills me? What if I pick a woman who can't have children? So I better do this. And, and yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a good thing for me because then I can keep God's promise going. I mean, we can even rationalize to the point where we, oh, we're helping God out here. 
um, when I'm afraid that things aren't going to go my way, I'm tempted to manipulate. I'm tempted to get angry. I'm tempted to sin. I compromise. Um, and so sometimes Dick always likes to say, you know, ask yourself, what's the sin beneath the sin? You know, what's the motivation? And it, it can be our fear that pushes us into this. We caught five mice this week in our house. Five mice underneath the sink. Somehow they get in. Praise God that we saw one, so we need to put traps out, right? Caught one, caught another, caught another, caught another. The last one was the worst, okay? Because we wake up, it becomes a little bit of a ritual. Ooh, did we catch any mice? You know, run down to the kitchen, open the drawers, open the cabinet, down underneath the sink. We thought the trap actually got tripped up by mistake because it was over in the corner and there was no mouse. We thought, oh, that's, that's weird. And so we're kind of looking in and I grabbed the trap to, you know, reset it. And it doesn't really, there's, wait a sec. Wait. So here's what happened. Not the tail. The leg of the mouse was caught and the mouse had tried to get through the little hole and the trap with the leg was, he couldn't pull it through. It gets worse. It gets worse. He was still alive. Pulled him out. And he's running around, dragging this trap, climbing. Man, it's one thing rats, but mice, they're cute. Little, little eyes. When you see ratatouille, and you're like, oh, I love this. Maybe he can cook for us. He's in the kitchen, you know. Um, he's squeaking these pitiful squeaks, right? So what do I do? Just a mouse. Now he's got the guys. The girl, no. Um, kids, get in here. You need to see this. Kids, this is going to bother you. But I want you to see this. And I show them. I say, kids, look in here. One of the kids, pretty excited. One of the kids, kind of bothered. One of the kids, heart really going out for this mouse. Right? Kids, watch this mouse. Do you see how he's struggling? Do you see how he can't get away? Do you see how he is trapped and that everywhere he goes, he's dragging this trap? Do you see how this trap is keeping him from going where he wants to go? Do you see this? Do you see what's going on here? Do you hear? Do you see how pitiful it is? Your heart should be moved. Kids, this is what sin does to us in our lives. This is exactly what happens to us when we give in to sin in our lives. This is what our lives look like. Our lives look like when we are playing with sin, toying with sin, compromising in our lives. This is what we look like. We look this pitiful. We can't do what we want to do. We are trapped. And the promise is, I will satisfy your desire, right? And yet we're trapped. So I asked, how do we get free? Nathan said, well, you got to remove the trap. I'm like, okay, well, so how do we remove the trap? Nathan said, well, you got to lift up the bar. I'm like, no, 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 no. How do we get out of the trap? And Amanda, she's so sharp. She just says, you have to confess and repent. Bingo. I mean, that's it. Because when we confess our sins, 
when we acknowledge to God that we've got something that we've chased after and now we're stuck. If it's an addiction, if it's, I mean, whatever it is. If it's a bad relationship, if it's our own hearts, that war that goes on, if we're giving in and Saul's getting stronger in our lives, if we're giving in to the enemy, the answer is, the only way to get that trap off of us is to confess it to the Lord and repent. Because when you do that, God promises that he will forgive you and he will set you free. He will put his spirit in you. Jesus will come and live in you so that you can learn to walk again, right? Sometimes you're up and you're off to the races. Other times it takes some healing to get that leg working again. But either way, God will pick you up and carry you if he needs to into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when I think about my own life and I think about so many of the lives of folks that are here, boy, we've had our experience with traps. So many of us are still locked in and we need you to set us free. Would you invite those who have areas of their lives where they haven't connected the dots of trusting in you and help them to trust you enough to repent. Help them to confess their sins right now so that they can experience your healing and your forgiveness. For folks who don't believe you yet, Jesus, would you please show them the freedom that can be theirs if they give up their sin, confess it to you, and trust in your death and resurrection for their freedom. Help us to wage war, this battle for our hearts. And as we experience that, help us to help each other as we all wage war together as a family. Jesus, teach us how to ask each other how the war is going in, our, in each other's lives so that we can support each other. And then Jesus, teach us how to share what you're doing in our war with others so that we might experience deeper relationships and we might see your kingdom growing, getting stronger and stronger in our city. We pray this for your sake. Amen.